Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So on this Trinity Sunday, we uh, revere the center of all things, the nucleus of being, the one whom we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a really important place to begin, because right from the start of this sermon, I'm trying to help myself recognize, and you recognize that you may be many things in life, wonderful things, but you are not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and neither am I. You occupy no throne, and neither do I. The one up here was made in Ikea, uh, so it doesn't count. It's not real. Uh, But it's a wonderful thing to abdicate and to recognize who is really king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, You you may know that uh, Sigmund Freud was a tepid admirer of ancient paganism. He was himself an atheist, but he thought that atheism was heading in a direction that was unsustainable because he believed that atheism led to ultimately not an absence of worship, but to the worship of self. And therefore, the more you worship yourself, the more neurotic you would become until it led to self-annihilation. So he actually saw ancient paganism as uh, offering a brief reprieve from that uh, misguided direction because at least in ancient paganism, you worship something bigger than yourself whether it was the moon or the tides or the king or the mountains or love or whatever, it was still bigger than you. And that was better for you if you could attend to or identify with something vastly superior to yourself. But he said that Judaism went a step further uh, than ancient paganism because it said there was something or someone greater still than the greatest things we could ever see. The tides are great, but there's something better than the tides. Love is great, but there's something better than love. The mountains are great. The king is great. All these things are great, but there is something greater still. There is a foundation, a ground of being from which all these things derive and have their life and meaning and purpose. And in Isaiah 6, we have a close encounter between the great prophet, the great man of God, and this greatest authority that lies at the bedrock of all things, that is the bedrock of all things. And in this passage from Isaiah 6, we really do get a contrast between the might of this world and the might of the heavens of one king who has died and one king who lives forevermore. This passage really is about a contrast between two kings. And so I want to dive into it and I'll divide it thusly. I want to talk about the defiled king and the cleansing king. But we begin with the defiled king in verse 1. So if you would take up and read uh, your bulletin in verse 1. And I'm just going to read the first tiny little bit of it. And remember, this is the call narrative in Isaiah's prophetic work. This is when God selected him to be a great man with a great voice. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Let's stop there. In the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, King Uzziah, you may have never heard that name or maybe you uh, have read a little bit about him in the Old Testament, but you've probably forgotten what you've read, which is, that's fine. But King Uzziah uh, was actually an incredibly impressive monarch. He ruled for 52 years. Uh, When I consider, for example, that uh, Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, has now celebrated her platinum jubilee, right, 
Uh, I always say, after mentioning her name, may she live forever, because I'm afraid of what happens to the monarchy after she's gone. Um, but, but this is one of those monarchs, a celebrated monarch. Uh, he fortified the walls of Jerusalem, which means he protected the city from attacking armies. He enhanced the military. He uh, helped to fund many breakthroughs in agriculture, actually, that kept the nation going through various uh, periods of famine. And he became famous even in Egypt. There are, there are little letters written in Egypt about King Uzziah showing respect to him because of all the things that he accomplished. Uh, and so he was a, a very respected and uh, a committed and very seriously devout person. However, he made, he made a late-in-life mistake. And many people do this, by the way. They capsize in the final years of their life. And that is what happened to him, because he did something that he regarded as reverent, but the Lord regarded as irreverent. He goes into the Holy of Holies for a variety of complicated reasons, and he throws incense on the burning altar of God, which is the duty of only one caste of people, the priests, not the kings. And because of that, he was struck. He was immediately struck with leprosy and spent the rest of his days in hospice care until he died alone and unclean. Thus endeth the lesson, right? I mean, that was it for King Uzziah. Uh, and so he began so well and reigned so excellently and yet this dark marvel occurs to him. And it's a very uh, tragic uh, event for the history of God's people. But, um, but uh, when the king dies as an exiled, defiled man, it demonstrates the, the, the problem uh, with, uh, in some ways with kingship in general. Uh, you may know that uh, God never wanted to give the Israelites kings. That was not part of the plan. <clears throat> But because all the surrounding nations of Israel had a king, the people cried out to the Lord for a king. Samuel, this aged, wise man, told them, look, I've, I've heard it from God that if you get a king, it's not going to be the sweet deal that you think it is. Everything that you have now, you're going to lose. Like the king will come after it all. You will, you'll be uh, ransacked and taxes will devour you. He'll conscript your children for war. This is all going to be a living nightmare. And that, they said, you know, that's fine with us. That's really what we want. And he said, okay. And so we have a line of kings. And this king was one of the best of them. But nevertheless, he was a deeply flawed man and in his own way. And what's interesting about Judaism, and you may know this, and it's a very sophisticated perspective that is not universally shared, certainly wasn't in the ancient world and is not now. In Judaism, they were able to distinguish between God and the temporary ruler. Now, most people can't do that. Most people deify their leaders. This happens in the ancient world, right? Pharaoh, he was a god. Caesar, he was a god. Even in communist China, Mao was a god. Kim Jong-un is a god, right? Many people like to ascribe to their politicians the weight of glory, even when they don't deserve that. And, and certainly there's no mandate from heaven that su should suggest that we do that. But the Old Testament understands no, at best, at best, the earthly rulers that we have, including kings, are very dim, very dim reflections of a grander ideal, a grander ideal that is by necessity distinguishable from the earthly monarch. And that's why, uh, from this pulpit at least, I always urge caution around time of elections, not because I'm against the democratic process or I'd, I'm not really interested in, in, in those matters from this pulpit. What I'm saying is let's not be messianic about people who are not the Messiah, right? 
I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but it's not obvious, and you know what I mean. When you get in a fevered pitch about your favorite candidate, you become a little nuts. I mean, not you, but somebody you know. Um, you become a little crazy and a little idealistic and a little messianic. So, and the Messiah wasn't on the ballot back then either. And, um, and, and King Uzziah dies. King Uzziah dies. So uh, the person that often uh, connotates stability in society, that's what they wanted a king for, give us stability. The stabilizer has died. Now what? The stabilizer has died. And many of you, and, and certainly myself, we understand this instinctively because all of us have someone or some idea that we believe in and esteem too highly. And then we are shattered when that thing becomes defiled in some way. That pursuit, by the way, that, and it's a faith pursuit, is always doomed to failure, regardless of what the superstructure we place faith in. So it might be the Democratic Party, or it might be an economic perspective, or it might be the invisible hand of capitalism, or it might be your relationship status, or it might be the shape of your body or your athleticism. It may be family values. It might be homeopathic medicine. It might be the right worldview or, or teaching your children the right worldview. It might be the reputation of being the sibling with the stablest lifestyle, unlike your slacker siblings. Um, um, it, it might be something like that, but it will let you down. I'm just telling you as your pastor, and because I love you, not because I'm trying to make fun of the things that you love, Love, but it will let you down. It will let you down because it's not God and it will let you down because those things, not only are they temporal, they are everything I just mentioned is defiled to some degree or another. They will let you down. So I was dealing with this um, very uh, distinguished gentleman who, from a worldly perspective, has really made it, really made it in life and is doing quite well, but whose father is in a nursing home and his father was also a very distinguished gentleman, very wealthy gentleman. But in his later years, this very devout, religiously oriented, uh, well-to-do, always well-dressed gentleman has, in the nursing home, experienced dementia, and now he is hitting on every single nurse that he has and has a lot of girlfriends and is acting very licentious in his 90s. Now, you might think that sounds weird. Happens all the time, all the time. I was a nursing home chaplain for a while, and I, I've seen things that I wish I could unsee, but it, it, it did happen. Now, but his son, his very uh, well-adjusted son, is being completely thrown. He feels like his inner world has shattered because his icon of perfection, his father, has demonstrated a little too much humanity, and that has broken apart all sorts of assumptions that this younger son has had about reality and the world and heroes and stability. And maybe you've been there too because you trusted too much in a son or a daughter or a parent or a minister or whomever, but, you know, life has been shattered. Well, all of these authorities that I've mentioned are all a form of King Uzziah, and this is the year that King Uzziah has died. This is the year that King Uzziah has died. That is, the superstructures which overpromise and underdeliver will eventually perish. And yet, I want you to notice what corresponds to the death of this great king is a revelation of the true king. A revelation. And that's what happens, by the way. T.D. Jakes always said, you know T.D. Jakes? Yeah, the, the, the TV preacher. He's very good, actually, in many ways. But he says, uh, whenever you find yourself in a devastation, you're about to get a revelation. <laughs> I love it. It rhymes, so it has to be true. Um, and, uh, but that is true, by the way. Uh, very often, what happens to you whenever you have some idol or, or some, some thing in which you place too much trust, if it, if it becomes defiled and falls apart, um, what, what usually corresponds to that, sometimes a week later, sometimes a year later, is a revelation of what 
you could have seen had that thing not been blocking your visage, right? And so that so when something gets devastated, there's a revelation on the way. This is the death and resurrection pattern in the Bible. And what is revealed in light of the dead king is a living king. So this is verse 1 again, and I'm now going to talk about the cleansing king. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So when the king dies, I am brought visionarily into a throne room, but a temple throne, in which I see a king. So the king is dead. Long live the king. That's the message of this text. So in the year the king Uzziah died, in, in the year that the superstructure of, of the people of God died, I saw something even grander, which was the, the true stabilizing agent of the world. And what do we learn about heaven's king in this passage? A few things. I'm just going to mention two. One, that he's gigantic. Visionarily, he's gigantic. Because the passage says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the temple was a massive structure, hundreds of feet wide. And what is the train of a robe? Well, you may know the train of a a wedding gown that brides uh, uh, wear, and and you see the train especially as it's unfurled as they walk down the aisle. Some of you remember Princess Di when she was married to Prince Charles. And, I mean, the train on her gown was, what, like 170 feet long. Um, But but in the ancient world, when you were a, a, a wealthy person, uh, the, the, the length of your train on your garment was a sign of your uh, wealth and authority. And so we see not the robe of God, whatever that would mean, filling the temple, but the train of the robe that fills the temple, meaning we're dealing here with a massive, massive person that is far bigger than any king, right? And, and whose very being and person exceeds the boundaries of the temple. He's bigger than the temple because only the train fills the temple. And, and this is a way of the prophet trying to say God is um, bigger than the king that we have right now. God is bigger than the temple that we built for him. And more than that, we hear from the seraphs later that the whole earth is full of his glory, not just the temple, but the whole earth. Nothing can contain him. This is, by the way, a massive uh, emphasis within the Old Testament prophets that you can't contain God in the temple like fireflies in a mason jar. It's not how it works. Ancient pagans used to think of their gods in that way, but Israel didn't. Israel's God always transcended and was bigger than any, any house that we thought we could contain him in. Uh, and so uh, the image, the idea is that God is massive and substantial and far grander than we can fathom. And I, I want to make a pastoral uh, word here to you, and I don't think it's an overstatement, that all self-sabotage in life, all self-sabotage in life comes from mistaking the size of God. Because what we do whenever we self-sabotage is we tend to view God as the God is sort of the small ingredient that is added to my life that makes my life work. But we are large, God is small. That's what the ego does. That's what happens in Genesis 3, by the way. That's the fall. God is small, I am large. So there's a a correction in this text in some ways about vastness uh, and the grandeur of God. And so we learned that heaven's king is gigantic, that the whole earth is full of his glory. But we also learned that he is very different than we are, uh, in that he is holy. And this is what it says in verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So seraphim, we don't know what they are, 
are crying out, uh, and seraphim, by the way, means burning ones, so fiery entities, and they sing about God's nature, and they repeat the word three times for emphasis, holy, 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 which is to be set apart and distinctive. And I find that that's interesting, that that's the word they repeat three times. And depending on where you are in terms of your own emotional framework and your own spiritual perspective, you might have wished that they said three other words to describe God. Uh, If you're very angry with the world right now, you're terribly nervous about where culture is headed, and you think that it needs to be put to an abrupt halt, you may wish that the seraph cried, angry, 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 right? That God was a big knife in the sky. He's going to chop this thing up. If you are a hippie, and you really prefer the live and let live, like hang loose mentality, because you think that's the cure, you would wish that the seraphs cried out, nice, 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 and that God would, in fact, be the opiate of the masses. Wouldn't that be dandy? But alas, the angels don't cry that, or the seraphs don't cry that. Instead, they say that the nucleus of existence, this God whom we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is chiefly known by what we are not. This is interesting. At least I find it interesting. If they cried out that God is angry, 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 that's not that different than what we are most of the time, or much of the time. Anger is a very common kind of human emotion. We often get carried away with it. Uh, Or if God is nice, 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 or even love, love, love. We at least experience those things from time to time, embody them, try to show them to other people. But one thing that we are not is holy, holy, holy. That is morally impeccable and set apart. And so it's interesting that they give God credit for being something that we are not. And what's interesting is that as Isaiah has this grand vision of this clean king who is holy, of this gargantuan king that fills up the whole earth, um, he sees two things more clearly. One is he sees God more clearly, but as a consequence, he sees himself more clearly in a way that's rather disturbing. By the way, this is how you know you really encounter God. When the word of the Lord comes, it does two things. It informs and it humbles. It cracks us open a little bit. I don't like that. I don't like the experience of it in my flesh, but it's always for my everlasting betterment. But that's what happens, and that's what happens to Isaiah. He hears this, he, he hears this word from the seraph, and he finds that he is out of sorts with this with this one whose train fills the temple. And he sees the crisis as having an origin place in his mouth. He sees his mouth as defiled and infected. And he says that I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, by the way, this wasn't a cocained out death metal rocker. This is like Isaiah, prophet, good guy, right? Okay, so when the prophet sees God, he starts to also see his inner horror, he sees who he really is. And this is, and this is somebody most people would think is a good man, but he sees himself in this moment as a bad man. And he doesn't just blame the culture, that's part of it, I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips, but he blames himself as a contributor to the problem within his country. It's also me, it's in me. I am the one who has produced this mess. I have contributed to the downfall of the world. That's what he's saying. And I think it's interesting that what he says is not, I have an unclean heart, though, of course, that could be true. Unclean eyes, impure eyes, impure thoughts, sure. No, he says something about his speech. Man, that's interesting. Because according to Jesus in the New Testament, it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The heart is evidence or evidences itself 
through articulation. By the way, it's the second most common critiqued Old Testament sin. In the Old Testament, the prophets are number one against idolatry, but number two against grumbling. Or if the devil can't have your heart, he will surely settle for your mouth. I have never gotten more feedback from any sermon I preached than the sermon I preached a few months ago on grumbling. And thankfully, it was positive. I'm grateful for that. Uh, Because I think this is something that we can all relate to. I want to consider the varieties of the deadly halitosis that can uh, derive from our mouths. Because mouths are very dangerous things. According to James, the power of life and death is in the tongue. And that death can take a variety of forms or, or... includes a variety of weapons. Mouths can lie. Mouths can cause division. Mouths can exaggerate. Mouths can break confidences. Mouths can insult. Mouths can uh, blaspheme. Mouths can gossip. Mouths can uh, engage in degraded speech. Mouths can spread pessimism and gloom. Mouths are incredibly dangerous. And Isaiah discovers this about himself and repents at the deepest level. He owns it. But notice how God responds to his cry. He heals him. He cures him. So one of the seraphs, or one of the burning ones, takes a burning coal, and fire in the Old Testament is often a, uh, a symbol for God's purifying presence, and he touches the very place of the offense, touches the mouth, uh, and that makes him clean. Um, God always meets us at the point of need. That was Isaiah's need. And that's where God met him. Now notice he takes the coal from where? From the altar. I only mention that because the altar was also the place of King Uzziah's original crime and the place where that king became unclean. And now from the altar of God, we see cleanliness rather than uncleanliness. And the result, of course, the text says, is this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin has been atoned for. And I think that this is the most remarkable factoid from our passage. Not only is the colossal, undying, holy king of heaven clean, his effect is cleanliness. Not only is he righteous, he spreads righteousness. And instead of making holiness a threat like it was for King Uzziah, he now makes holiness something that is contagious. God's health is contagious. And that's what uh, I want to say to you uh, tonight, that God's plan for your life is that you get well. And what it means to get well is that you uh, fall into alignment with the beautiful pattern that he's established in creation and in scripture for you. That's what wellness looks like. That's ultimately the plan of God for all of us is that we get well, we get healthy. We mirror that which is grandest. Yeah. And that's what he does for Isaiah. Isaiah, this man, uh, came to God with a lot of problems, and God met him where it mattered. And uh, so now let me take this passage about the defiled king and the cleansing king and land it for all of us. So here's the landing. Um, All of the King Uzziahs in our world, which uh, overpromise and underdeliver, will always be eventually beat up, used up, uh, defiled, and perish. Why? Because they are not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And neither are you. And you don't have to be. There already is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That vibrant, stainless, secure king remains. And we are about to encounter him. 
In every single service of Holy Communion, we reenact Isaiah's vision. How? Well, first, right before we take communion, we sing the Sanctus. That's Latin huh? for holy, holy, holy. That's what we sing. We join with the angels and archangels as we sing this hymn. And then we get humble like Isaiah. We get down on our knees and we say a prayer called the prayer of humble access. Uh, we say that we are not worthy to come to this table. We own the fact that we are people with real problems. And then after that, like Isaiah, we eat atonement. We eat atonement, not by sinking our teeth into a simmering piece of charcoal, but by chewing consecrated bread and drinking consecrated wine from a table. This is the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, for you and for the remission of your sins. We're reenacting the vision. So on this Trinity Sunday, we remember that Isaiah's giant, his holy king, the universe's undergirding authority, does something unusual. This king does something that we ourselves would never wish to do. He crawls in the dust to us all the way to the cross. The father sent his holy, holy, holy son, and he for us became unclean, unclean, unclean. Late in his life and in his prophetic work, Isaiah would write about this fact when he described the death of the tormented, sin-soaked Son of God. He used these words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And this same enthroned king who sent his son also sends you the spirit to replicate the life of that same son in you and in me. So the deep king, the great king, has a will for your life. And that will is health, wellness, renewal, personal renaissance, non-defilement, holiness, and full recovery. And so when communion touches your lips today, receive it as a vow from Almighty God and remember the words that the seraph told Isaiah because those words are just as true for you. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Amen. They took your life. They could not take.